I learned a new word this week. Maybe you know it. Misophonia. Now, it's not like misophonia. No, that's not it. Misophonia <laughs> is, although church world, that's a whole different sermon. Anyway, misophonia is apparently the hatred of sound. Okay, some of you are nodding like you are aware of this phenomenon. Like, for instance, I thought to test it, I could bring a chalkboard in here. <coughs> calm down, calm down. The spirit led me away from that. It's good. No. But you get that. I mean, that kind of fingernails on the chalkboard thing is, is what's um, in, in mind there. But it's not necessarily those irritating sounds. A lot of times it just has to do with normal sounds that, that kind of get under your skin. For instance, some people breathe loudly. Have you noticed that? Have you ever been in a quiet room and you hear somebody breathing? Usually it happens during prayer meeting, during a long prayer. We call that snoring, and that's a different thing entirely. But nonetheless, I mean, you know, you kind of have that sort. Uh, here, here's one of mine, chewing. I'm not talking about kind of smacking your lips. I mean, do you know how loud it is when people eat potato chips? You can hear it like across the room. And then you go to a movie. I, this gets me. Oh, you go to a movie, and you have all these people with popcorn. And the digging in, and then the crunching. Like in, and it, it becomes, I don't know if you listen, it's like th all of the chewing harmonizes in the room. Have you noticed that? They sort of feel each other's rhythm out, and everybody begins to chew on the same cadence. Is, am I the only one that notices that? Somebody know a therapist they could recommend? <laughs> I think that's the way we're heading, yeah. There, there's a lot of things that, like that, um, you know, I'm sure we could mention, and I just debated opening up the, the room, but I thought that could cause trouble between marriages and the like, so we'll just go with my issues um, mostly there, but, but they're there. Um, it's just that sense of sounds that really irritate us, and, and usually that happens when things get quiet. You know, if you're in the movie theater, you notice that before the film starts when they're playing the previews. Or if, if you're at the dinner table, I think that's maybe why a lot of people have background noise like at their homes for dinner because they don't want to hear each other chew. No? Maybe? No? Okay, fair enough. I, but I think the danger is as well that, that we can become, well, spiritually averse to sound, that, that we focus on all those loud, distracting noises that we fail to hear the very voice of God, the thing we should be most attuned to. And we're going to look at a passage of Scripture today that sort of illustrates that very point. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 19. If you brought your Bibles, you can turn there. We have some that are tucked under the seats. Most of the verses will be up on the screens as well if you want to follow along there. And of course, don't forget your handy-dandy, trusty, rusty phone or tablet with your app. All sorts of ways you can follow along today. 1 Kings chapter 19 is where we're going to begin. Um, verse 3 particularly is the first verse we'll read together. Um, well, actually, we won't read it together like in unison, but... I'll read out loud, and you'll read along on one of those other ways. Yeah, that's what I meant. Moving on, verse 3. 
Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. We need a little background here. Why was Elijah afraid? Good question. He was afraid because of what happens in 1 Kings 18. At the end of 1 Kings 18, there is a bit of a contest. You may be familiar with this this account, this story, where Elijah, as the prophet of God, has a showdown with the prophets of the false gods, Baal and Asherah, on Mount Carmel. And there, they, they issue a challenge. We are each going to set up a sacrifice, and we will pray to our God or gods, and the God or gods that answers by sending fire on the sacrifice is the real one true God. Interesting test. Elijah, being the prophet of God, lets the prophet of the false gods go first, and they start, and they just go on and on and on and on and on on most of the day. Nothing happens. Elijah's turn, one of the things he does is not only does he build the altar, but he orders several gallons, several vats of water poured over it so that not only is the wood saturated, but there's like a trench around his altar that gets filled with water. And it's obvious in this, I guess part of the thinking is that there was no trickery involved. You put that much water on this fire, there's obviously, or this wood, there's no way there's hidden fire there. And Elijah prays, and God, the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that we worship today, answers fire, consumes the sacrifice, consumes the wood, consumes the water in the trench, and Elijah has a, just a huge victory in 1 Kings chapter 18. Because of that, he's emboldened and has the false prophets rounded up and killed. There's just one problem. Queen Jezebel. I would say King Ahab, but we all know it was really her, right? Queen Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel rulers there. Jezebel is irate and makes the threat, the promise, however you'd like to look at it, to Elijah the prophet of God. I'm coming after you. And what you did to those prophets of Baal, by this time tomorrow, you will experience the same fate. And Elijah reacted. According to 1 Kings 19, verse 3, by getting scared and running for his life. Now, that's remarkable to me on a lot of levels. One level is, wait a minute, did you forget what happened 10 minutes ago? Like, you prayed, and God demonstrated his power, that he listens to your prayers, that he, that he answered. The whole nation is amazed. You had a rousing victory, and immediately... The first sign of struggle, you're afraid and running for your life. And then I look in the mirror. I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that. You probably have too, right? Have you ever noticed? I see it a lot in in my own life. that We have these moments where we might call them great spiritual victories. Like something remarkable happens. Maybe it is a prayer we've seen dramatically, even miraculously answered. Maybe it's an experience we've had. Maybe it was a particular conference or something that we got to go to and we, in that moment, knew God was there and heard His voice and felt just in a remarkable way. We call it often in church world, those mountaintop experiences. And and God is so tangible and God is so real and God is so on our side that we think, what can go wrong? And we wake up the next morning and it feels like the rug's been pulled out from under us. 
and it seems so long ago and so far removed what just happened. And we're, we're a little overwhelmed and maybe we're a little scared and we feel like Elijah did, that he would run for his life at the first sign of resistance. Tells us more particularly where he went. He went when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. So he's going to go on the run solo. Verse 4 continues the account. While he himself went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree, sat down under it, how's this, and prayed that he might die. Now I wonder why that is. Speculation, totally. Maybe he's thinking, okay, God, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Maybe he's thinking, if I have a choice, either Jezebel's going to get me or God's going to get me. God's going to do it nicer. Maybe that's just like real practical thought. I don't know, maybe, maybe not at all. But, you know, just wonder what brings you to that. From I'm scared for my life to running away to I just want to die. I think he said it like that. You can't see that in the English, but in the Hebrew it's clear. Yeah, that's it. He's, he's just over it. He can't, can't think about even going on. And, and the, the, the account continues. What does God do in response to that? Now, wait a minute before you go to the next slide. Have you ever, we have parents of teenagers here, former parents of teenagers. Doesn't this sound like a teenager? Doesn't it? Is it? When your teen came to you, what was your response? I'm not asking you to admit it out loud. But, but it was probably, oh, here we go again, right? Like, really? More drama? Okay, whatever. What does God do? Aren't you glad God doesn't treat us like teenagers? Here's what God does. Next verse, verse 5, I think we're on. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. So God hears this sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, dramatic whine. And there's no sense in this moment that, that God comes and confronts him about it and gets all up in his face about it. No, he rests and God sends the angel and provides a very practical thing. You know, this is like where they got the idea for those Snickers commercials, I think. Right, right here, First Kings chapter 9. Okay, maybe that's pushing it a little far, but nonetheless. You've seen those commercials, right? You're, not, you're hungry. You're not the same when you're hungry. Ha- okay. Hangry. That's, is that hungry? Hungry and angry. Ah, I've learned. I, I have some witnesses in the crowd that have apparently been hangry. I've been uh, slangry. You ever been sleepy and angry? That's kind of, I get sleepy. Shall we just make up some more words? <laughs> I like it. You know, we have these, these, these needs, and, and God meets the need. It goes on, and, and, and it continues. Um, get up and eat. So next verse tells us this. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals. That must have smelled so good. I mean, not only does God say get up and eat, but he provides what he's going to eat and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. Let's keep going. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So God sends this angel not once but twice to provide for very practical needs for Elijah. I, I think that probably is, there's, there's a message in there somewhere for us that, they got, that God kind of sees through 
our, our fits at times, and he sees the need behind it, and I'm glad that that's the kind of God we serve. But, but we want to look at some things that happen after this. Next slide tells us this journey is going to be quite a journey. So he got up, ate and drank, strengthened by that food. Listen to this. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, that's a pretty significant place, Horeb, the mountain of God, particularly plays a huge part in Israel's history. It is the place where the children of Israel, having left Egypt, were encamped around, and Moses went up on Mount Horeb. That's why it's called the Mount of God, for one big reason, to receive the Ten Commandments from God. So Elijah travels 40 days and 40 nights. That's a long trek, strengthened by this food, to go to this place, to go to this place where he knew God, at least in his mind, he knew God was. He remembered from his history, from the things he'd been taught, that it was on that mountain that God showed up in remarkable ways. It was there, probably, that he thought in the light of what was happening, where he was, if I could just get there, get to that mountain, get to that place of safety and security, get to that place where God, I know, is, then things are going to be all better. So he goes to the mountain of God. Next verse tells us a little bit about that. Then he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? When you read things, you kind of wish sometimes there was that inflection there. When I read this, this is what I hear. I think the emphasis is on the last word, in my mind. Maybe not. I can't tell you a grammatical convention that points this out. But I, I picture God, because of where he is, saying to Elijah, Elijah, what are you doing here? Like, why did you come here? Why this place? What is it about Horeb, the mountain of God? What is it about this piece of geography, this place? And we've just kind of talked about that. There was meaning there. But God, I think, confronts Elijah with that. Now, we could look at a lot of different kind of subtext to that question. Maybe the, the idea isn't necessarily tied to the geographical place as it is to the emotional state he's in. The idea of, Elijah, why are you here? Remember what happened, you know, about 40 days, 40 nights, six weeks ago? Remember that great victory that we had together. Remember where you were. You were my prophet to my people, and my people are way over there. You left them. You went out into the desert. Why are you running away? We might could see, but, but particularly I think there's that, that word here jumps out to me. Why are you here? Why did you come to this mountain? What is it about this geography, Elijah, that drew you? And then there is his answer. This is a doozy. You thought the last one was bad. Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. On the surface, most of that is right. Have has he been zealous for the God, Lord God Almighty? Yes. Prophet of God speaking for him. That big showdown thing. Have the Israelites rejected and broken down alt, uh, altars and put 
prophets to the death, yes, that's happened. Are they trying to kill him now too? Yep, you know, this is probably left out though, right? There's one little thing in there, one little statement he makes that really probably points to the reason he's so upset in this moment that is absolutely untrue. He says, I am the only one left. You ever felt all alone? I'm guessing yes. Guessing there are times, even in a crowd of people, you can feel all alone. Elijah felt that in that moment. But notice how that feeling manifests itself. It manifests itself in the first statement in just an undercurrent of pride. I'm all alone, even though I'm really good. God, I've been really good. I've done exactly what you told me, and I've done it, done it with passion. I've done it with zeal. I've done it the way you've told me, God. And, and, and the people you sent me to, God, they're really the problem. They're messed up. They have broken the covenant or rejected the covenant, broken altars. They've killed other prophets. Your people, God, are the problem. And, and now these leaders, the king and queen in Israel, the king and queen were thought to be in many ways, representative of God to the people. The idea that God was the ruler of Israel manifests itself through the physical rulers, the king and queen who led the people, and he's pointing to them and saying, even they who should stand for something have turned against you and me, and here I am, all alone. And so God has a prescription for this problem. God has something he asked Elijah to do. In particular, the scripture says, verse 11, The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. I like that. You ever want that? Wouldn't you just like to like be in a, in a mood, be in a low moment, and God answer you like that? Like, okay, Stand up, I'm coming. I like that. And then it changes, because the way it unfolds from here is a little bit unexpected. God tells him to stand, tells him he's coming. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper, or maybe for some of us the more familiar phrase, a still, small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Same question, by the way. Did you notice that? We'll get back to that. A couple of thoughts. 
Elijah is at Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. He's at a place that holds significance, as we've talked about. And at that place, in the days of Moses, God also inhabited the mountain. And we can see even some parallels between that moment in Exodus chapter 19 and this moment in 1 Kings chapter 19. In fact, I think the next verses are going to show are from Exodus 19, verse 18 and 19. Listen to what happened when Moses went up on the mountain. In Exodus 19, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. Next verse tells us, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Did you you notice that? For Elijah, there was a wind. For Moses, there was a trumpet. Similarities there, yeah. For Elijah, there was an earthquake. For Moses, the mountain trembled. Sounds awfully familiar. For Elijah, there was a fire. And we just read for Moses, there was a fire and smoke billowed like from a fire. I don't think that was lost on Elijah. I don't think he missed out on the symbolism. I don't think as one who had been steeped in that tradition and probably held that experience Moses had on Mount Sinai close, that when he stepped out and the wind came, that violent wind as it's described in 1 Kings 19, I wonder if he connected it to the trumpet that blew. And he thought, surely this is God. But it wasn't. And when the mountain began to shake, when the earthquake came, he probably remembered that that quake, that trembling of the mountain in Moses' day, and, and maybe his, his hope went up just a little bit. Ah, now this is God. And certainly, when the fire came, that physically visible symbol of the smoke that rose from the mountain must have triggered in his mind, God has descended on this place. Yet still, Scripture tells us God was not in the fire. How did Exodus 19, 19 end? Back up a slide if you don't mind. Then Moses spoke, and what answered him? The voice of God. And after the wind, and after the earthquake, and after the fire, what came? A still, small voice. I read this account of Elijah. I think about how I want God to show up. How I often describe those moments when I feel closest to God. And you know it, well, it usually looks more like a wind and an earthquake and a fire than it does the still small voice. Like for instance, when you go to that conference, that concert, oh let's do that. You go to that Christian concert. I've been to a few. First one I went to, first 
Yeah, it might have been the first concert I ever went to as a kid, but it was a Christian concert. It was Petra. Anybody remember Petra? Yeah, okay, good. That was cutting edge back in the day, I think, and I got to go to a Petra concert. Some of the, one of our youth leaders took some of us in our youth group, and we went to see Petra, and it was like, oh, this is so amazing. And, you know, so on and so forth, and other concerts happen, and you go, and, and you're in this arena, and you're like packed in shoulder to shoulder, and it's loud, right? There's a wind blowing. And if the amps are cranked up, there's a little bit of, you know, you can feel the music. You feel the, tr- and there's usually fire. Have you noticed that? And you probably go, oh, God was there. That was awesome. I felt God. Yeah. I'm not saying it wasn't. I've been to some concerts where that was the case. And we, we put the trappings of things around it because we like that, what they do, how they make us feel, the way they pull us in. You know, I heard a, a preacher talk about going to services even, like church services, and people leaving and they say things like, oh, the Spirit was there today. He said, sometimes I think this is what it means. There was a big crowd and they liked the music. Sometimes those are two good things. Having a lot of people, the momentum, the energy that comes with being in a crowd. Songs that, they're some of your favorite. I love that song. I love to sing that song. I love to hear that song. Yeah, that, that works. We, we can look at those things and connect those things specifically to that is how God demonstrates his presence that is how God moves that's what I want to see maybe it's not even a a big picture thing maybe it's more personal maybe it's that kind of life-shaking miracle that God does for us and we have the thought oh if God would only do that again whatever that is God would only act in that way if God would only answer that prayer if God would only demonstrate his his power that way it would be amazing maybe that's our way of traipsing 40 days and nights across the desert to get back to Horeb to get back to the place where we we feel like that's where God is that's where I need to go and I think we're often confronted with the same question that Elijah was confronted with why are you here When I buy that ticket, when I go to that concert, when I look for the, the smoke and the, the bass and the, the energy and the wind, do I think, oh, this is God? Or am I, am I there for that or am I there for God? Because when God finally makes his appearance on the scene for Moses, it was a word, it was a voice. When God finally makes his appearance on the scene for Elijah, it's a voice. It's a word. It reminds me of Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because, what is it? It is the power of God unto salvation. 
We've been studying John on Wednesday nights, and John chapter 1 is one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus walked this earth, when the word became flesh, the glory of God inhabited this this globe. It was a remarkable thing. Were there miracles? I seem to recall a few. But did you notice how many of the times after the miracle, Jesus would say, hush up, don't tell anybody, let's keep this between us? He did that. Because he knew people are attracted to wind and earthquakes and fire. And they go, oh, that's the picture. That's what I want. Especially people that were desperate for a deliverer, for a Messiah, for a hero to step in and save the day. We want that. We crave that. Elijah, in this moment, having just had that, Oh, by the way, do you remember his prayer? We have to go here, yeah. Elijah, if he just remembered what happened on Mount Carmel, you would think he would know better, right? Because what happens is the, the prophets of Baal get first, first crack at it. They set up their altar. And if you were to back up a chapter, if your finger's still in, in 1 Kings 19, chapter 18 is where this happens. And it says in verse 26, so they took the bull that was given them for the altar, and they prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us. They shouted. There was commotion. There was energy. After it didn't happen, after fire didn't come, and they were getting, Elijah started ribbing them a little bit, they began to get even more desperate. They began to, to cut themselves, to do these these rituals that were part of their faith tradition that supposedly in a dramatic way was to encourage the presence of God. And the way they thought as they worked themselves into a frenzy, there is what their God needed. And then you come to Elijah. And it's a stark contrast, at least as the movie plays in my head. Verse 36. At the time of the sacrifice the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. This is all he said. The sum total of his prayer to God that was answered miraculously. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know you, O Lord, our God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. And the fire fell. See, Elijah knew that. Elijah knew from his own experience. There was a stark contrast between the emotional frenzy that often masquerades for us as authentic relationship with God and that still small voice that we have to tune into, that we have to kind of push out the distractions from 
and lean in and hear. Because he had seen and experienced that. And so God asked him for the second time, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now surely he had a better answer. But no. God asked the question twice. So just in case God didn't hear him the first time, Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to the death with the sword, and I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Boo-hoo. Same bat, song, you know, same bat channel, same bat time, same stuff, same plate, same everything. You ever been stuck? Like, spiritually desperate for something, wanting something, but you just kind of feel like a broken record or the record that just keeps playing that same 20-second loop. I feel like that's where Elijah is. He's kind of stuck. How can he be stuck? He just heard the voice of God, and he knew it was God. Did you notice that? He didn't have any question about who he was talking to. Because it says when that still small voice came, he knew it. He put his cloak down. He kind of showed reverence because he understood what was happening. And yet, still, it's here. And here's what I think. Why do we get stuck in those loops? Because we get st- the, the real loop we're stuck in is self-pity. And in my life, self-pity has been the enemy of spiritual growth. Because what self-pity does is what Elijah did. Look at all those things. God, I'm good, but your people are bad, and these other bad people are bad, and the king and queen are bad. So somehow maybe you're bad because of them. And what is the opposite of that? It's probably something more like, well... Let's put the word repentance on it. Self-pity and repentance have a hard time coexisting because self-pity wants to look at everybody else and, and all the other stuff around me that is the problem. And repentance addresses the person in the mirror and says, no, I've met the enemy. And it is, well, I think you're supposed to say us if you're quoting that thing, but it's me. Unless, you know, met the enemy, it's me. What I need to do is own my stuff. Recognize the part I played. See where I erred and turn, rather than to make excuses, to take responsibility, to confess, admit. And what does the Bible say? If we confess our sins, if we... Repent in that way. God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so Elijah isn't there yet. He wants to say the same thing. I'm glad we serve a gracious God because once again, God answers to Elijah in verse 15 and says to him, Go back the way you came. 
That's good advice, by the way. Go back the way you came. I, I think he's saying that because, as we've already talked about, Elijah went 40 days and 40 nights. Well, actually, 41, because there was that first day he went away and went up the broom tree, um, and then went another 40 or so. So went six weeks out from where God had called him and placed him and had used him, and he's out of the spot. And so it's like God saying, I need you to physically relocate to the place I put you. And sometimes we need to do that. Sometimes we need to take this advice and go back the way we came. As, I think it was Henry Blackaby in his study, Experiencing God, that would talk about this. He would say, as, you're, as, as God is speaking to you and you're, you're on that path that you are certain of God's leading and presence and, and you find yourself off somewhere, somehow, because it happens to all of us. None of us are perfect. We all, even thinking we're on the right path, can make mistakes and stray, and, and it's our choices that get us there. And he says, think back to the last place that was right and go back there. You ever been lost? Oh, you ever lost anything? Have you noticed you always find it in the last place you look? Because that's when you stop looking, right? No. But that, if you're like me, I like physically retrace my steps. Okay, I lost my keys. I have a habit of leaving them in the door. I open the door and leaving the keys in the door. Like, woke up one morning, went out, like, oh, there are my keys. You know, and so what I'll do is, at church, I come to a door, I, oh, I don't have my keys. Where have I been? And I'll go back to every door. And usually in one of those doors, there are my keys, and I'll pick them and I'll go back. So, you know, we know how that works. I go back. And that's what Elijah is told by God. Go back the way you came. Go back to the last place, the place where I put you, the place where you're supposed to be. Get back on the path that you're supposed to be on, he says, and, and he continues, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram, also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel, and anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from... Don't you love this? Aren't you glad I'm reading and not you? He's from that place. No, he's from Abel Mahola to succeed you as prophet. Go back the way you came because I'm not finished with you yet. Next verse, I think it's the last verse we're going to look at today, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, no, we got a couple more. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elijah will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. And then the last verse, I hope. Yet I reserve how many? 7,000. In Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and all whose mouths have not kissed him. I think the enemy, one of his tactics is to make you feel all alone, to get you to the place Elijah was, to make you feel like nobody's ever been through this before. I'm the only one that's ever felt this way. I'm the only one that's had to deal with this. I'm the only one of whatever. I'm the only one really trying to live for God, however it looks or sounds in your head the enemy wants you to think it's just you. But look around. I mean, I meant that seriously. This is how you do it. <laughs> Try it. You'll like it. Look around. You are not alone. There are people in this room, I would bet... That whatever right now feels overwhelming to you, they are either there with you in the similar situation or have been in one and seen God work them out of it and can testify how that happened. If you look around, you would notice there are some people younger than you in this room, which means 
They haven't been through everything you may have been through. And if you look around, there are some people older than you in this room, and they might have been through more than you've been through. And if you look around, you'll notice there are a variety of people from a variety of backgrounds with a variety of socioeconomic situations in a variety of places in their vocational life with a variety of interests and talents and gifts and abilities. And somewhere, I would imagine, in this room is someone who, were you to spend time talking, you'd find out, wow, I'm not alone in all this. See, Elijah had to know, first of all, uh, you're not alone because I'm here. Hello, that was God, not me. Just for the record, in case you were confused. God wanted to say to Elijah, I'm still here. I'm still around. I still got your back. I still see it. Even when you run 40 days off into the wilderness, you can't get away from me. I'm here. And there's 7,000 others who have stood just as strong as you. The enemy wants us to feel all alone. He wants us to feel isolated. He wants us to, in fact, so convince ourselves that we won't do anything. We won't make any choices that connect us to other people. One of the things that's kind of my hope for our church as we go forward and as we we think about, you know, growing in different things is how we can connect all of you into a small group of people. Because this, I have fun with this. I enjoy when we get together. I enjoy singing with you. I enjoy, yeah, I enjoy my sermons. I can say that, can't I? No, I enjoy preaching. It's kind of what I'm put together for. I, can, I enjoy doing this. I, I like that dynamic. I also like on Thursday night when I go in that room with about eight or nine other guys and we sit around and we have discussions. And yes, we have a, a study we're going through, but invariably, if you've ever been in one of those groups, we kind of stray off that because something comes up and there's this this person that, that mentions something and there's ministry that happens there that can't happen in a room like this because, you know, we're kind of designed to be uh, up front and, you know, stage and audience, and I don't mean that in the literal way, but physically how it is, um, rather than a talk-to-each-other sort of thing. So, so my hope is that if you're not, that you'll look for a small group of other Christians that you can get together with because you find in those small groups you're not alone. People hear and pray and support one another, and that is what we need so desperately in the face of the attack of the enemy that wants to isolate us and keep us in our own little corners, convinced nobody has it as bad as me. That's the sermon in a sentence, like from last week. You are not alone. God is with you, and he's given you this thing we call the church. You're not alone. The resources are all around you. What's the takeaway? Well, that was one of them. Find a small group. Let's go back to that still small voice. Because we live in a noisy world. I think it's not just when we look for God that the wind and the fire and the earthquake happens. Sometimes it feels like life is wind and fire and earthquake all the time. There's always something. There's always a push. There's, there's always something that's demanding our attention or an urgent issue that comes up. And it's hard 
to hear through that. Remember the words of Jesus when he told his disciples in John chapter 10. My sheep, they know my voice. They won't follow a stranger because they don't recognize his voice. But they know mine. But you got to listen. You got to listen. As we've talked about for a couple weeks, you have to be still long enough to hear. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you desire to speak to us. I thank you that you have spoken through your word and that we have the privilege of opening it and hearing from you. God, I recognize that our life and the kind of pace that we must function at, it seems, these days is sometimes overwhelming. And we feel like we're caught up in the momentum. And, and even when we have those moments of what feels like spiritual victory, that mountaintop, as it were, experience, God, that it's real easy to find ourselves not so long later feeling like that never even happened. And I thank you, God, that that still small voice, that gentle whisper, is there. I thank you that, that your word, the word that became flesh, Jesus, the word that was revealed through scripture, endures and is alive and active. And I thank you that you tell us in the Bible, even as, as Paul wrote, that, that your word, particularly the gospel, that is the power of God in our lives. Lord, when we thirst for that moment that shakes the mountains or the fire that roars or the, the wind that blows, may we remember that it's in your voice, in your word, in your gentle whisper that we find the source of power needed for our lives. I thank you for this. I thank you that you've revealed yourself. I thank you that you work in our midst. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.